Hello, and welcome to This Should Be a Podcast. I'm Jill Norton. And I'm Jay Boninsinga. And welcome to our first episode. And we're writing this... (laughs) We're not writing this, we're talking. (laughs) Don't scare them. (laughs) Uh, We'll be writing today during the podcast, so it's going to be a very quiet podcast. (laughs) You'll just have to get what we're writing. You'll hear little sounds of... (laughs) That's the pen on the paper. (laughs) Uh, But we are writing... God damn it. Why? What's wrong? I keep saying writing. <laughs> we are recording on this beautiful Freudian afternoon slip. Uh, that is in the midst of the coronavirus, where everyone is on lockdown, wearing masks on their face, and we just walked to the grocery store and the beach, and it was very uh, apocalyptic, yeah. but in yeah. a, but in a sunny, beautiful day kind of way. <laughs> yeah, you know, it reminds me of remember. Uh, years ago uh, on 9-11, you know, in the days afterward when you were trying to get home, if you were out of town, if you you were driving somewhere, and the sky was just like this big blue vacuum, this big empty void. You don't realize how often a plane, especially if you live live in like Metro Chicago or Metro New York or Metro LA, a plane goes overhead like I mean, literally, like every ten seconds, right. it seems. Yeah. I don't have the numbers, but you know, now, now there's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's no contrails up there. Yeah, that's a word that I overuse. Probably eerie. When I was a kid, I used to read Eerie magazine. <laughs> anyway, um, be that as it may, you know, I thought that because this is our inaugural podcast that we we should just chat a little bit about wh- who we are and why we're doing... I sound like Dan Rather. Jill, who are you? What haven't I asked you? Who are you? <laughs> really? Who are you? Who is Jay <laughs> Well, I, I think I can speak for both of us that we're both sort of in this strange uh, gig economy and gig lifestyle where we do gigs as people in the arts as professionals in the arts in one way or another but we also work in the corporate world and in the education world and I work off and on in the corporate world writing ads and and speeches and communication stuff and but I also am a novelist and a filmmaker and a screenwriter you know we've done uh, are you gonna leave that there because that looks really precarious to me the drink or the... The drink. <laughs> well, I just, I wanted to kind of avoid this. What are you drinking, by the way? Because each each podcast, we're going to have uh, the theme drink. Uh, today is an Aperol Spritz. Oh, yeah? Perfect well, for Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, refreshing and not, not too boozy. Not too So we can sort of keep focused. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, anyway... Does that make sense, what I just said? Would you say that's true for you? I don't want to speak for you, but I usually do. So I guess I will once again. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree. We have a lot of uh, different ways of seeing things. I am a photographer, but I also work for Northwestern University and uh, see you know, a lot of different sides to this whole craziness that we're in the midst of, um, yeah. as is everybody. Me too. So, but in this time, we thought we're hunkered down, and what better time to start getting some of this down and recording some of this. We have some really interesting conversations. We've got interesting stories that we find and we talk about amongst ourselves. 
you know, we're just bringing everybody in. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying that I have a special point of view, you know, over anybody else. We all have, you know, our own way we process stuff like this, especially things that have never happened before. I have kind of a strange aspect you know, viewpoint, perspective on it, being a person who writes about the apocalypse a lot. In fact, for eight years, that's all I wrote about. For six days a week, I'd get up and write about the apocalypse. And it's um, strangely ironic and, and mundane in a weird way. To We just a few minutes ago walked past a grocery store with a huge line out front with people keeping six feet from each other with masks on in line to get into the grocery store just to buy their their hamburger and, and you know, milk. And it, it really looked like a scene out of something I've written. You know, it's really, it's really a sign of the apocalypse. Well, I think uh, often our listeners will find that you are apocalyptic and I am a little more, uh, everything's going to be okay. And so. And I'm, I'm so a little bit country. <laughs> And definitely rock and roll. I um, know. <laughs> but so to your point about the apocalyptic seemingness of like Trader Joe's on a Sunday afternoon, um, and I told you this on the way, but the there's a neighborhood of Chicago that is putting, everyone is putting, everyone who's kids is putting a teddy bear in their window. Uh, it may not have originated there, but I just heard about it this week. And so that when parents are taking their kids for a walk to get them out of the house, that they've got something to do. And they walk around the neighborhoods looking for the teddy bears in the window. And I just think that's like the cutest thing ever. So uh, why, why don't you start them <laughs> off with what we're going to talk about? Boy, you just really revealed that I'm Mr. Dark and you're Ms. Light. It was going to come out. It's like yin and yang. It was going to come out it's at some point. It's a fabulous sort of smorgasbord. Of, of dark and light. Yes. So, uh, but to We're me, like a checkerboard. Okay. You need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to uh, tell you two kind of crazy stories that... Um, Can I just say one more thing about The Walking Dead? Uh-huh. The, the Walking Dead, the whole theory among many people that I worked with and that were fans of The Walking Dead, they thought that... Um, the, the reason it was so popular was maybe not what you would think. It was because all the social normalcy, all the norms and mores, all the, all the like civilization had been stripped away. And it was just survival. I feel like we've all just retreated to our little rumpus rooms in our little basements where we have our video games and potato chips and... Yeah, as far you as know, it, it's go as go. far as apocalyptic events go, it's sort of not that bad. I mean, I mean, yeah. I know it's bad, and there is a lot of scary things going on. But as far as like what we have to do to sacrifice, it's not really much of a sacrifice. It's like a all, Cub though. Scout den version of apocalypse. You know, there's there's plenty of food, there's activities, right. there's teddy bears in the window. As long as you've got toilet there's, paper, yeah. I mean, it's it's really a wimpy version of, of the apocalypse on some levels, but on other levels, you know, already we're in the into the five figures of deaths in this country alone, and and I don't know how many deaths worldwide, hundred thousand or something like that. I mean, it's it's horrifying and mortifying. All right, well, so let's talk about more death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's my stock and trade. Uh, so today we're going to tell you two stories that we both just felt. 
needed to be a podcast and need to be told. Um, so Jay is going to start. What are you going to? Why? Tell us why about? are we? Why? Why are we saying that they need to be a podcast? What's the point of that? Because we both, both is that are, our title? Yeah, this we're sticking a, with that. Yeah, this should be. What's the title? This should be a podcast. Okay. I said it in the beginning. <laughs> Just want to reiterate. So this isn't the time to rethink the show. Um, <laughs> While we're on the air. Right. Is that what we're going to call been, this? You know, I've been, having some, I've been having some doubts. I've been having some doubts about the show. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, my... Um, you know, one of my first reviews for a book that I wrote many years ago uh, was "Disaster's Been Good to Jay Boninsinga." <laughs> so this is a this is a story of a disaster, and I believe this should be a podcast because to this day, even after numerous books now have been written about it. Documentaries have been made, even a play, a musical, by a Tony Award-winning theater troupe called Looking Glass Theater from Chicago, Illinois, was produced based on this disaster. It's still widely unknown. I still think of it as like underground history. Would you like me to take the people through like a general sort of timeline of the story, yes. a general general ex explanation of what the disaster was? Yeah, why don't you tell me what it was called and then, yeah. Okay, well, this, this, this came to be known over the decades since it happened. The Eastland disaster. Like the direction east and then the word land. The Eastland disaster. Why? It occurred in 1915 in the Chicago area of the United States of America. We were just starting to build these massive manufacturing facilities and factories, and our industrial era of the 20th century was just starting to roar toward us. And one of the largest factories in the world at this time, 1915, was in the Chicago area. It was located in a little town called Cicero, about eight miles west of Chicago, and it was known as the Hawthorne Works. And the, you can't leave where I'm right in the middle of it. I've had crickets as an audience before but i've never had an entire audience leave to go to the bathroom or be asleep I while i was just getting into my story <laughs> to my right our cat frida is sawing logs she's so calmly sleeping happily oblivious bed. in her little marshmallow bed and my one my one audience member just left to go get her sweater <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> back to the Hawthorne Works. The Hawthorne Works was the largest factory in the United States in 1915. Why? Because it was almost like the Silicon Valley of that day. It was built to manufacture all the components of this new exciting technology called the telephone. So you can imagine how huge this was. It was like a city within a city. It had its own railroad. It had, you know, gymnasia. It had restaurants. It had theaters. It, it had a workforce of thousands of people. By 1915, it, it employed thousands of mostly immigrants. These were really hardworking, blue-collar factory workers. But in those days, factory work was very different than it is today. It, they, they worked... 
nine-hour days. There were no coffee breaks. There was no such thing as a coffee break. It, it, they worked on Saturdays. They worked six-day weeks. Oh, also, I should mention that they dressed up to sit at the on the line wind cable or build housings for telephones the women the men the men wore vests and bowler hats and the women wore long skirts and lace-up boots and it was a very formal era and uh, this plays into the story in a strange way that's called foreshadowing Jill just in case you're wondering <clears throat> this, is, this is what I do I got it <laughs> um, anyway <laughs> Um, so you can imagine, though, when these people got a chance to blow off steam and have a celebration, a, a, a vacation, an event that they could enjoy themselves, they would really um, embrace it. And each year they sold tickets for this thing they called the Summer Picnic. And this was their whole year revolved around this. This was like the social event of these factory workers' years. And uh, in 1915, it was scheduled to be the largest summer picnic of them all. It was so big, they had to contract a half a dozen ships to moor along the banks of the Chicago River. And they would load up all the people and they would go across Lake Michigan to a resort area. Uh, sometimes it went on the coast of like Western Michigan. Sometimes it was in northern Indiana. Um, this year it was gonna be in a place called Michigan City. And it was gonna be the biggest most grand, glorious banquet picnic of them all. They would have a huge banquet in a, in a parade, and they would uh, name a queen of the picnic. And so you can imagine, we come to that fateful day when they're scheduled to leave for the big picnic, July 24th, 1915. And all these folks had sold, they sold 8,000 tickets uh, all the extended families of the factory workers, their neighbors, their grandparents, they all woke up that morning to kind of a drizzly gray day, but it didn't affect... Yeah, you have a question? I do. Um, On the back of the class, young Jill <laughs> Norton. Uh, yeah, isn't it true they all had to purchase tickets for this thing, right? They paid for this trip. Like, they, they, it was almost mandatory that they buy tickets, correct? Well, that was a little bit of controversy, over the years because you know the history of this is very sketchy that's another sort of mystery to it it's really a mystery wrapped in a riddle surrounded by an enigma and so nobody really knows for sure if they were forced to sell tickets to win awards on the factory floor some people said um, there were foremen who forced people to buy tickets and go to this I don't know if I believe that per se because I think when something horrendous happens all this hindsight is 2020, and also a little catty and a little accusatory. Right. All this hindsight, well, finger did, pointing. Well, you did say tickets have been sold, so that's why I brought it up. Yeah, but they did sell tickets. They, they sold tickets. They were like 75 cent. I'm going to get all these facts wrong now because it's been years since I wrote the book. I wrote a book called The Sinking of the Eastland, Americans <laughs> Forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, what was the name of my book? <laughs> Um, There's been so many. I, mean, I lose track. No, no, it's called The Sinking of the Eastland, America's Forgotten Tragedy. And it was published by Citadel Books, a wonderful publisher in New York, in hardcover and then in trade paperback. And it's one of the books I'm most proud of. I mean, out of the 30-plus books I've written in my career, that's the one I'm most proud of. That and, and uh, Rise of the Governor, The Walking Dead, Rise of the Governor. Um, 
But back to the story. Oh, go. You have another question? Well, I was just going to say, wasn't Jump this... right in. You don't have to raise your hand. No, I don't want to talk over you. Okay, so you, but you know what? I kind of like that you raise your hand every time you want to talk. Can you just do that all the time when we're on the couch? Okay. I was just thinking that you, I mean, you can tell the story, but when you were with your friend walking and you saw the plaque and you were like, what is this? What I never even heard of it. And then you heard the story of it. You thought this should be a book. Oh, yeah. Similar to like well this should said. be a book. Yeah. That's really, I didn't even think of that. Okay. I, that's the whole impetus for doing it is I thought this should be a book. When I first moved to Chicago in the year 1981, yes, I'm dating myself, and we were taking a walk with a friend along the river, and he goes, yeah, this part of the river is supposed to be haunted. And I thought, what? And I'm looking, and it's just, it's sort of, it's between two bridges in downtown Chicago. There's hundreds of thousands of people walking along these bridges, and there's a, there's like a convenience food mart right across on the other side of this little square of water, and I'm like... And he goes, yeah, there was a shipwreck there. And I'm like, wait, right there in front of that white hen pantry? There was a shipwreck? It made no sense, but it turns out there was. What happened, you're wondering? Well, these people went down to the Chicago River that morning on July 24th, 1915. And they all wanted to be like the first, among the first to put out to, to, to leave for the to depart for the for the shores of, of western Michigan and, and you know northern Indiana. They were going to northern Indiana on, on this particular year, Michigan City. And they all wanted to be the first. So the first boat that was moored there that was scheduled to put out at 730 that morning was called the Eastland. The SS Eastland. And it was this beautiful, very famous steel hulled steamship that had run the, the, the route along the Great Lakes, different routes, that had run the fruit route, the, the midnight, uh, moonlight, dinner route, coming back and forth from Chicago to, to Grand Haven, Michigan. And it was, it was a lovely boat, and it had two gangways, and they that morning they just poured onto that ship. Families, babies in mother's arms, all dressed to the nines. They got all dressed up that morning and they were wearing all their finery and, and crinoline and bonnets and boots and the men were wearing straw boaters and it was, it was just this lovely era uh, and, and it, was, it, was, it was a simpler time but I think this was maybe the end of the simple time this morning. I would say it ended this morning because they poured onto this boat that really wasn't rated for as many people as were boarding it, you know. And around seven-ish that morning, they had to stop taking people on. They put, they drew chains across the gangways, and they said, "That's it." The guys had these little counters, and they they were up to twenty-five hundred people. And the ship was rated probably only for you know eight hundred, a thousand. It, it used to have sleeping berths, and they had removed all the sleeping berths and just put, like, concrete floors down so they could fit more people. But that eventually started to make the boat really wobbly and top-heavy. The sailors used to call it a cranky ship because it would be very hard to maneuver in these inland waterways. Once it got out into the open water, into Lake Michigan or Lake Erie, where, where it had worked for, I think it was 12 years, the boat had been in service. Um, it was fine. And the sailors said it was like a two-wheeled bicycle. Once it got up to a certain speed, it was solid as a rock. But when your two-wheel bicycle slows down, that's what this boat would do. So sure enough, 
people boarded and they instantly felt something was weird about this boat because it started to lean. And at first it just leaned a little bit and then it then it moved back to its upright stable position. Then it would lean a little more out toward the the, the starboard side and then it would lean it would it would I'm sorry, it was the port side. I think if I'm correct it was the port side. And then it would lean back. And uh, when you write a book in the year 2004 and 16 years later, <laughs> you recount it from memory. You just think, you, I can wing this. I'm really probably messing up on a lot of like the numbers and the details. But but trust me, this, this really happened and it is amazing. And it is stunning and horrifying that this happened. So the lean got worse and worse and worse. As it, as it drew closer to 730... Okay, people, passers-by, because remember, it was a work day. Tens of thousands of people started stopping on the bridges on their way to work, pointing and going, that boat's in trouble. The the people on board heard these people on the bridges going, hey, get off that boat. Get off that boat. And the people on board were just like, ah, yes, silly, you know, uh, you know, goof. There's nothing wrong. There was even a band playing on on the boat. There was a little. They called it a mandolin orchestra. It was a little, or you know, string orchestra with it with it with an actual piano, an actual you know spinet piano on the set on the lower deck, and it was playing, and people were dancing, and they had their picnic baskets open. They were having snacks. It was, they trusted, their company. Who wouldn't, you know? But the lean, the boat would would pitch. Uh, it would lean. I think the correct word is list. Mm-hmm. And it would list more and more down to 40 degrees, 45 degrees. Like it's like, why is that boat not falling over, you know? And by 725 ish, I say ish because nobody really knows for sure. There's not a, you know, computerized timeline of this. It's all word of mouth and, and oral history. But right around 7.25, the captain, Captain Peterson was his name, um, he said, let's put out. Let's take off the change. Let's, let's, let's get moving. Let's, let's, let's depart. Uh, that'll get this boat to stop wobbling. And so they threw the mooring rope off the aft, or the fore deck, you know, the fore deck, and then the, the aft. They started to take the chain off when all of a sudden, almost without warning, even though the boat was listing, it had gone back up to its stable, upright position, and then it completely fell over. It did not completely capsize to where it was upside down. There wasn't enough water underneath it, but it completely fell over, threw hundreds of people into the toxic, horrible, horse dung-infested, freezing, freezing, fast-moving, treacherous Chicago River, and many people, hundreds of people, died instantly below decks because they were crushed. It happened with, in, in like a matter of seconds. In fact, a, a cop who was at the scene looked up and saw it happen and said it was a silent disaster. It was a silent catastrophe, I think was the way he worded it. Like an egg turning over in the water. It made no sound. And it was mass chaos. It was a horror like no horror I or any other horror writer could make up. It was terrifying what happened. 
so many people dying before an audience of tens of thousands of citizens who were helpless. In those days, people didn't know how to swim. Nobody took lessons down at the Y in those days. There were no Red Cross swim lessons. And these were all low-income immigrants. Yeah, exactly. And they were dressed up in these heavy church clothes. You know, that just made them sink like stones. Right. And some people tried to throw crates, chicken crates, into the water. There was a little market down along the river. And um, it did no good. It, in fact, it probably, you know, caused more people to drown. And it was just a c catastrophe. And, uh, you know, one last thing I'll say is that there was, there was no emergency services. There, there were no emergency services in that day. There was no paramedic. There was no, there was, there were, practically there were no motorized emergency vehicles. Even the police and the fire department were still horse-drawn in those days, in 1915. And so by the end of that day, they realized they had a disaster, the likes of which uh, they had never seen. And to this day, the Great Lakes area or Chicago has never seen a disaster this deadly. By the end of that day, they counted up the number of casualties, and they found that 844 people had died that morning. And how many were? Um, 2,500 were on the ship. Right, but how, more many, how many were staff and how many were guests? Thank you for asking that question. I was just about to say more passengers died than on the Titanic, which occurred... Do you remember when? 1912. Very good. You should be telling this story. <laughs> 1912, yeah, three years earlier. They had a larger loss of life on the Titanic, but, you know, it was it was a combination of factors. But more more staff people, more, more crew died on the Titanic than on the Eastland. The, the crew on the Eastland knew how to jump off the boat. One of the... One of the um, factoids about it that haunts people to this day is that the captain hopped up on the top deck and as the boat rolled over hopped over the rail and landed on the the dock and didn't even get his shoes wet what a dick yeah yeah he was one of the great dicks of history <laughs> <laughs> in fact his name was dick dick peterson no i'm just kidding his name was peterson but it was P-E-D-E-R-S-O, um, you know, pronounced Peterson. But Captain Peterson was, was uh, he was a horrible, you know, villainous figure due to a lot of things. That, it, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just one of those things you could talk about for hours, and this is a podcast, but that's essentially the essential essence of the essentialness of it. Does that mean the ending of the story? No. The story never ends. Well, like what, you know, what, like because they did, just they just produced a documentary about it this year. I know, but who? Um, uh, Harvey Moshman and Chuck Coppola, two brilliant filmmakers, produced a documentary on it. Right. My question is about the aftermath of, uh, you know, was there a trial? Did someone get convicted? Was there anyone held, yeah, there held accountable? Because there, it was a lot about greed and the people who owned the boat and right. all that kind of stuff. I can sum it up by saying. This was Chicago. So most Chicagoans believe the whole thing was whitewashed. Nobody was found guilty. The only person that ever had to pay any, um, you know, 
remuneration or, or had to had to be uh, convicted uh, of anything was the chief engineer Joseph Erickson, and he was found guilty years after he had died. And he was sort of the fall guy, right? Because he was a hero in my book, right? Literally in my book. I didn't even mean that. I think that's the first time in my life I've ever said that. He was a hero in my book. Literally. But it actually was. Did we get that on tape? We did. Okay, that's that's funny. It's cute that you I'm said sorry. on tape. You know what? You're a hero in my book. You know, this is a computer. There's no tape involved anymore. Did we get that on the little the, the gramophone with the little needle that's cutting this? Is this, is this an Edison? What brand is this? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so that's the story of the Eastland, right? Yeah. It's fascinating. And definitely try to find the book, watch the PBS documentary. It's fascinating. You have a great voice. <clears throat> Thank you. So I did not write a book. Uh, so I had I read a book, and I was fascinated with the story because it is sort of from uh, where I came from in Cincinnati, um, in northern Kentucky. And this is the Beverly Hills Supper Club fire of 1977. Wow. So <clears throat> there's a lot of parallels and similar situations just in terms of aftermath. And is there any connection to the Beverly Hills in L.A.? The, no. The, no. No. Um, well, let me. Just, Is it spelled the same? Yes. So let me just describe the the situation there. So in 1977, from 1930 through the 1960s and the 70s, Northern Kentucky, this area was like Southgate, which was right near Newport. Newport's where we used to always go get beer without IDs. Um, but it was just a sketchy area. It was just prostitution and illegal gambling and just not where you want to be. So the whole area had been taken over by the Cleveland mob called the Cleveland Syndicate. And specifically in this situation, there's a Cleveland Four that really kind of come into play. Um, and essentially, if you had a club in that area during that time, they would come and say, uh, we're buying your place. And if you didn't comply, your place would be burnt down by morning or you would be you would just disappear or you'd be murdered. Uh, so pretty much everybody would comply with them. And this <laughs> Beverly Hill Supper Club actually... But you went, could keep running your place? Yeah, they would let you stay on as like the manager. So this was like their version of stories you hear about the New York mob and, and the Chicago outfit where they, they took a taste of every little business right. on the street. Right. This was their version of it. We're just going to own it. Right. We get all the profits. Right. You can and, keep and, drawing your salary. Right. And also just the prohibition element to it. So during prohibition, they were the ones who were handling all the underground booze. Right. So now they were sort of, you know, they still had that in That control. was a really good deal for them. <clears throat> Owning it. And they probably owned it tax-free. And they didn't have to pay a dime for it. Oh, what a great idea. That was an awesome deal. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the Beverly Hills Supper Club had been uh, several different um, uh, versions of itself. Uh, prior to what it was at the end, it was called the Beverly Hills Country Club. And it was up on this uh, very kind of high point uh, looking over the Chicago River. Or, I'm sorry, the Ohio River. <laughs> Wrong town. And it was a nice place. And, I, and that uh, was owned by these two brothers, the Schillings, Robert and Richard Schilling. And... That place got burnt down in 1970 for similar reasons, and the and the mob ended up buying it. 
it got rebuilt and it got rebuilt to be even more beautiful than it was before. And this is what then became known as the Beverly Hills Supper Club. So the shillings were, I think at that point, I, maybe maybe they were working with the mob on some level, but they weren't going to sell the club. And they were making lots of money, and they were doing they were getting like really top acts like Bing Crosby and. Can you describe the place a little bit? What was it like to go there? Where, well, what did it look like? What did it? Well, I can I can tell you a few things without actually having been in it, but uh, you drove up from the almost from like the highway. You drove up a long driveway to this upper level. And it was huge. In fact, in the last couple of years, they had just kept adding on to it. So on any given night, and in fact, the night of this event, there was a wedding, there was a bar mitzvah, there were dinner parties, there was a, a, a convention <laughs> convention um, of people for a big dinner party, and then there was the show. So it was, so like, a, it was like a complex. <clears throat> it was a compound. It was, it wasn't just, because people think supper club, they think like a little restaurant. Yeah, no, in fact, the, but and it did have that. Yeah, but that was just one part of it. But they, but they had this club where they had these big acts come in, and the act that night was John Davidson. Um, so sure, Dimples. So, what? John Dimples Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just had big dimples. Right, that's true. And he was he was a, he was like a dreamboat crooner. Did your mom like him? I don't remember, but <laughs> and he was he was a little more like. Uh, a little after my mom's dreamboat crooner era, he was like 70s. I mean, I remember yeah. when I was little. And he had a TV show, didn't he? Did yeah, he have a TV show? That sounds right. The yeah. John Davidson show, I think it was called. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, getting back to it all. So a lot of things led up to this, and there's all the suspicious activity. And this book that I read, um, which is by Robert Webster, um, which is written on from an account from someone who worked there who had done a lot of digging and a lot of had a lot of suspicions and found years later that many other people who had worked there had similar suspicions and the more that came out about it this guy thought this needs to be a book and came to this author to get all this down and basically they had a reinvestigation had opened up so that kind of leads to this book which I found so fascinating just because it tells so much. So I'm not even going to be able to skim the surface of the background of this, but I would recommend finding this book. And it is really the only book. The only other book is the other side of the story. I, having not written a book about this, uh, actually did a tremendous amount of homework, though. So even though I won't be able to cover all of it, I'm just going to kind of hit the high points that I found were fascinating. So let's just start with the day of the event. And at about 10 o'clock in the morning, there were two men who arrived wearing maintenance men outfits. Um, they came in, and you have to imagine that at this point when people who work there are all arriving, uh, the owners weren't there yet. This was on a Saturday. Uh, so people who work there are seeing these two maintenance men, and everybody just thinks someone else may have have ordered them to come in. When asked what they're doing, they say that they're going to work on the air conditioning system. And years and years later, you it will be found that there was no order to work on the air conditioning system. So the worker who was the one who brought this to the author, um, he sees the men in the zebra room. So there's all these fancy names for these rooms, but it does kind of come into play throughout this just to kind of keep an idea of who's in what room and what's happening in each room. So he sees them in the zebra room and they are on a ladder. They are taking ceiling tiles out. They're working around a chandelier and he has to set up for this wedding reception and they're kind of being dicks and they're like, you know, you have to get out of here so we can finish our job. 
So he leaves and then he comes back. And during that time, uh, a woman who was like the catering manager or whatever had seen them as well. She later has a call to one of the shilling owners and she mentions before she hangs up, oh, by the way, did you know that there's some workers here? And he says that he didn't order any workers and to go ask the men what's going on. She never sees them again. Meanwhile, another two cars pull up and about six people get out, two of which are kids. Not really sure why. Uh, no babysitter that day, I'm assuming. But these people come in and they are dressed as like a cleaning crew. So they've got buckets and claws and cleaners and stuff like that. And they get on ladders in like the main foyer and down these hallways. And when asked what they're doing, they said they're there cleaning the walls. So again, this is a Saturday, you know, before a big night. And so a lot of people thought that it was odd that this was going on, but no one really, everyone just assumed that this must have been ordered and they just went on with their day. That's about one o'clock. Um, and to 1.15, now several people see these people paint, uh, well, they're cleaning the walls, but really what they were found to be doing is painting accelerant on the walls. So at about 2.25, the, star, the staff starts setting up the cabaret room. So this is the room where John... Maybe you better just emphasize what you just said. What? Painting accelerant on the walls. Well, it's going to come back. It's that's gonna... that's evil and terrifying. Right. What is it exactly? What is painting? What does that mean? It means that they're painting things on the walls to make the fire go, you know, basically faster, right. longer. Um, fires tend to go from bottom to top. It's like to a go chemical. Up, and this makes it go yeah. sideways and, right. uh, and down. And there's a lot of down fire that we see in the end of this. Uh, so 2.25, staff are setting up the, the cabaret room, and this is the biggest room. Uh, there's about 925 people in that room by the end of the night, and that's where John Davidson will perform. So at 5 o'clock, the wedding, there's a wedding there. There's a chapel actually on the property, and the, which is at 4 o'clock. So at 5 o'clock, the wedding ends, and people are starting to arrive. So a little after 5, three guests hear what they hear, what they called a muffled shotgun blast from the ceiling or high... A high wall where the wedding cake was at, during the reception in the zebra room. Other guests start to notice a burning smells, but don't mention it to anyone. Why? Why is that? What? You, I don't know. But the, but I mean, you, you can't. That's all. Did anybody mention the shotgun blast? Like, Everybody just thought it was something else. They, was there anybody in charge? Like, was there a manager? The, the owners there? weren't there yet. It was the owners didn't get there till like later in the evening. How about like a manager or a modern day? Well, you're just gonna have to roll with me because okay. there's a hundred things of no one mentioned it, and it's extremely annoying and crazy. And that's Weird. part of yeah. what's crazy. That's part of the story. That's part of what yeah really yeah. got me about this. Yeah. So. Some of the staff are actually complaining to each other that their eyes are burning and dry and itching and that their skin is itching and irritated, which will be found later to be because of the accelerant that was on those walls. So at about 535, a second blast is heard in the same area in the wall, and the guests are complaining that the room is now getting warm, but all attribute it to the amount of people in the room and that it's getting a little warmer. So a little before six, two guests arrive and notice as they come up the big long driveway, a neat column of smoke about six feet high coming out of the roof. And this is the first instance of anyone seeing smoke more than three hours before any sign of an emergency in the building. But of course, they do not report this to the staff. It's that, that I can think maybe maybe you would think it was just a, a, a kitchen. Right. So at six o'clock, a third blast is heard in the zebra room and guests are complaining that the AC needs to be turned on because how warm it is. 
People in other areas at this time also start smelling foul odors, and also another five people witnessed the smoke out of the roof when they arrived. But again, in each instance, no one reports this to the staff. At 6.30... Can I just jump in and ask why? I wonder... I know you don't know the... Nobody knows the answers to most of these things. But, like, why wouldn't the staff go, man, that smell... Something smells wrong. Everybody... It it comes into play. I mean, there's... Like, kitchen staff, they know when something's burning. Yeah, but... Do you know what I mean? Like, something that's burning that shouldn't be burning. All I can say, coming from a hospitality background to a certain degree, is that it's Saturday night, they're busy, they're doing a ton of yeah. stuff, and they're just going about their Well, it's also, it's like Shades of the Eastland. It's exactly what happened on the Eastland. Right. Nobody really noted or cared that the boat was Knew tipping. Knew was going on or anything, yeah. right? <clears throat> yeah. At 6.30, someone in the zebra room smells the smoke, but they attribute it to candles in the room. The groom of the wedding hears a loud, a loud bang behind him, like someone banging on a metal desk. He is told... He actually asked about it, and he told it was probably a dish cart hitting the wall, which, of course, it wasn't. <laughs> well, well, it was just more fire blasting. It was well, more fireballs. Well, I mean, I don't want to, like, spoiler alert, but basically what's happening is those men who came in in the beginning put something into the air conditioning unit. So the air con- So it's basically the ceilings, and then there's what they call a void point, which is a, or void area or something, which is a space between the wall and and the outside of the building, which is where, like, the pipes and the air conditioning comes from. So this will be found later. There, a lot of it starts in the basement because these two men end up in the basement at some point, too. But whatever. Um, so this whole fire is going on in the walls and the ceiling. and no, wow. And no one knows that's, that's happening. spooky and creepy. Right. So... Um, 6.45, more guests arrive seeing smoke, but don't report it. In another room of the club, the guests describe a hazy or foggy atmosphere and dismiss it to be cigarette smoke. At 7.20, the women at the front desk takes a call from a man asking, when was it that the Beverly Hills burned down before? And then asked which of the two shows would have the biggest crowd for the John Davidson show. She told the caller she didn't remember the earlier fire and she was too busy to chat. And then the guy said it burned down on June 21st, 1970 and hung up. By 7.30, more guests are seeing a bit of smoke, others hearing, having eye, skin, irritations, and still smelling foul smells. Everyone is attributing this to cigarette smells and don't report it. Between 8 and 8.15, several people smell smoke, tell a waitress, and she assures them it's just probably cigarettes in a trash can. Um, nothing to worry about. At this point, people start filing and in, filling into the cabaret club for the big show. Uh, no one's aware that anything is happening in the building as they're coming in there. Because, you know, this place is so big that all these things are happening in one area of the building. So people are not even knowing that there's things happening on the other side of the building. So by 820, there will have been 18 people who would later tell investigators that they had seen smoke and not reported it. At 825, a man enters through the kitchen dressed in a maintenance worker clothing uh carrying a tool bag. Staff in the kitchen found this odd on a busy Saturday night, but didn't say anything and don't don't see the man again. At nine o'clock, there are approximately 2,400 people in the club and no one is aware that a fire has been smoldering for four hours. The event is in the zebra room. Oh, the event in the zebra room had ended, so no one is in there. A waitress will try to enter to get the room to get something, and she sees dense black smoke along the ceiling. No flames, though, but she has another waitress find an owner to let them know of it. From this time, the smoke is seen. Uh, is seen as reported to the fire department within a minute. This will be disputed. There are several like 
they called the fire department right away, but then there was, um, you know, someone called the fire department later because they didn't know that someone already had. The fire department didn't document the first time someone called. So there's like this discrepancy in even when the fire department was called. So that comes into play when it's the blame situation. So staff starting getting people out of the rooms, escorted but outside, but no flames have been seen yet. So everyone thinks that now that even that they're trying to prepare for getting people out of there, no one thinks this is really a big deal because they're not seeing a fire actually. So now at little after nine, several rooms have been evacuated, but no one has any idea how bad this emergency is. Fire engines start arriving around 9.10. Someone has made an un announcement in the cabaret room, but some guests aren't even t taking it seriously. Before the John Davidson show, there's a like a comedian puppet act going on. And so the busboy or waiter who goes up to make an announcement, like people just kind of think he's part of the act. So some people are just drinking and smoking and talking and not paying any attention to him. And also he wasn't trying to, he didn't want to like make everybody freak out. So he was just trying to be like, it's not the big deal. Please go ahead and get up slowly, whatever. So one thing about the building is that in the main foyer, when you first walk in, there's like this huge spiral staircase and the fire is kind of happening underneath there as well. Um, people are trying to exit, but now the smoke is becoming so thick, it's getting harder to see. So around 9.15, the flames have only been in the zebra room, but finally reached their, what they call a flash over point, meaning that it has consumed all burnable materials and literally explodes into another room in search of more fuel. So this causes the flames from the zebra room to go in three different directions, one of which is heading down a hallway towards the cabaret room. So it's not just going up in the room that it's in, it's now going sideways down hallways. At this point, it's noticed by many that the fire is not heading as much upward as fires usually do, but literally going down hallways. Everything in the cabaret room, carpets, chairs, tables, tapestries, all catch fire instantaneously. There's still 500 people trying to get out of the cabaret room and panic is now taking over. So there's pushing, shoving, if someone's falling, no one's helping. At 9.15, only 15 minutes since smoke was detected, firefighters described the fire as completely out of control. The club is now officially termed fully engulfed. So all news channels are on the scene reporting. Now keep in mind there's no cell phones. Uh, once people are getting out of the building, they're just kind of wandering. A lot of them are, have smoke inhalation, so they can't reach their families. Families are now starting to see stuff on the news and they're not knowing if their family's safe. People are getting oxygen from ambulances uh, while others are still inside trying to get out. By 11.30, 120 are counted dead and at least 40 ambulances are at the scene. It's so it's just a nightmare. So people, there's a lot of things come into play about what happened, and so there are photo, and there's also photos of just bodies laying all over the ground out there, and it's just awful. So the, by the following morning, the news channels are scrolling the names of the dead at the bottom of the screen, and the death toll would eventually reach 169 people. One wow. thing, one thing that started happening is those news crews started showing up, and these people are leaving, and people have are telling stories to the news the news people and and not accurate stories so the, all these false stories start coming into play now the cover-up so now the cover-up uh so the building had passed inspection in 1976 and they even had an emergency plan in place in uh may of that year but they clearly were not prepared for this. So fire investigators on the scene felt there was suspicious elements to this fire. However, there were many rumors and misinformation, uh, false statements about the fire, and witnesses stated that thousands were trapped 
um, fuel tanks were exploding, doors were purposely being held closed. Um, one newspaper printed that a stove in the kitchen blew up at nine o'clock starting the fire. Months after, these would all be proven false, but the media picked them up and started reporting them that night. So at the site, like the governor showed up right away. And at first he just wants to know, you know, how did this happen? I want a full investigation. The mayor of Southgate shows up and he is now tour. It's this is kind of now getting towards morning and he's touring the building and just seeing the nightmare of these, you know, corpses they're still finding and the rubble. Now there's a little bit of hearsay, different opinions about what happens next. So even though the governor had, um, you know, was saying that he wanted a full investigation, the more he was hearing all of the news and the rumors, he just started believing that the shillings were to blame for this. So the governor, it's been told two things. One is that the governor is not a big fan of the Schilling brothers. And so after he starts hearing all these things, he starts to just say, the, it must be because of an act. It must be because of ne- negligence on their part. Um, he even has the Kentucky State Police show up the next day and uh, and attest that you know arson is off the table and that the, this is what it, the deal is. But then there are state troopers there. There are people there who are seeing you know definitely suspicious things that are going on. They they're seeing a lot of the firefighters are seeing <laughs> the firefighters are seeing uh, the smoke you know, from where a fire came from, there's like literally policemen charging down the street. Um, (laughs) I arranged for that. (laughs) So anyway, so this is a Sunday morning. There are people checking it out. The fire is still going in certain areas. So they were unable to like completely get it all out, but everything they can check out, there's definitely suspicious things. They find that the, the fire had started around the zebra room. So they're investigating, they're seeing things going on. And they had had an investigative crew, like, ordered to come out on Monday. By Sunday evening, the governor, Carol, was already saying that it wasn't arson, it was negligence, and I'm having the building demolished. And by Monday afternoon, the entire building had been demolished, especially even near the zebra room, um, evidence had been taken, like things where the electrical outlets were and things of the ceiling, any pieces that showed anything from the air conditioning duct, uh, pieces of the wall were taken. So all the uh, evidence that they had was being taken away. So there was a lot of like, you know, a lot of different stories about this. about what, you know, once the the right, correct information started coming out on the news, but it was one of those things where, you know, once you hear one thing, everybody just believes that to be true. So he made the decision to start bulldozing. The investigators had not even arrived yet. Um, and the governor had not even assembled his task force that he said he was going to do. Him telling them to tear down the building was never made public. Like, no one knew about that. That was something that was told later. But he, and he denies it to this, well, to this day. I'm not sure if he's still with us. But there's pictures of him standing with next to a bulldozer as the thing's being taken down, like, the day of. He even had the Kentucky State Police, like, go up to show up and tell the Schilling brothers that, you know, this is the situation and whatever. And the, so that was one story, is that he didn't like the Schilling brothers. The other story was that he actually did have ties to the mafia and that he had been involved with them. He had been friendly with certain levels of them. There was, and also he was involved already in a lot of FBI investigations. The whole area there was shady and he definitely, he and probably members of his operation were in with the, in with the mob. Um, that's, you know, that's basically the... 
what happened. And so there are a few things that, you know, I learned afterwards, but, you know, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. The main question that it begs, because you said somebody placed a call in the middle of the fire that was suspicious. The fire that no one knew existed. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> that. And then you said that a, uh, because see, here's the thing. The mob was supposed to burn this down, okay, like they have done down through the generations over and over again, burn down restaurants that didn't play play ball. Right. Okay. So they were supposed to burn this down at 5 a.m. The theory was that, was that, that it, was, it should have started at 5 a.m. so that no one would be hurt because in the past, people, it would happen in the morning. Um and this was unusual, but but it, I didn't read anywhere in here about that. It didn't mention that to any degree. Did the mob want to kill hundreds of people in a fire? <sighs> well, because I, that's it, it. I'm not. It seems odd that they would purposely do it. Like that's not how they work. They they burn down restaurants and warehouses after hours right. to ruin the the people who own it. Right. But to purposely incinerate hundreds of people right what well, do, do you do you have a theory about that is which do you think it is do you, do you think it was it was a mistake or they did want it to occur on a busy night and that you know they're they're like you know john davidson fuck it burn him well you know I mean, what, I, what was I, the thinking all i have is my own theory on it. what is your theory again, my theory is that they had been the mob had been working with the shillings before and trying to get a hold of their property and the shillings weren't complying they were doing really well and they just thought they've been dealing with them long enough that they so i maybe they're you know them doing what technically is like a mass murder uh was to teach to, them a lesson to, to teach them a lesson to shut him down for good so you so think that gonna... that was this was a purposeful mass murder yeah wow yeah. Wow. Right. And and so also this, so, you know, basically the governor had shut this whole thing down. Uh, and also there was the police, like, you know, it's the job of the state police to rope off the area. And people were like coming in, stealing, people stole a body. There were, you know, people wanted to get memorabilia. So they were going onto the site and grabbing stuff and taking it. So the site was not secured at all to do any kind of proper investigation. Years later, there was a reinvestigation of it, um, and they found a lot of these things to be true. They found that a lot of the state or the fire department, the fire specialists, um, thought that it was arson. They thought it was suspicious, um, but to this day, nothing has ever been done for it. A lot of a right. lot of the families got money, um, the, uh, but yeah, but that's it. And then, and this to this day, the thing that kind of drew me to this in the first place is that where this location is, you know, most times when there's a tragedy of this nature, of any nature, there is a plaque, there is a, a memorial of some sort, and there is there is a small plaque at the bottom of the driveway, and the place is blocked off to drive to cars going up. You can walk up, but it's private. It says private. You know, do not trespass. Um, and the creepiest part of this is where the club was. So where the club was is now like this overgrowth, yeah. which is, I guess, from fires when there's overgrowth, it doesn't grow high so much as it grows like almost to like a, like these 
these trees that kind of cover over and you're like walking into like a little shrubbery sort of with a pathway through it. But the families of the victims have put this sort of makeshift memorial in where they actually have like string going by to show you kind of the pathway. They have um, photos and signs on trees saying this is where the zebra room was. And there's actually like a sign of the zebra room. There's photos of the wedding cake um, that's melting on one side of it that's against the wall so creepy and then and it tells you like eight people died here or four people died here there and there's still stuff just laying there there's a safe laying there there's like a there's pieces of tile and it's just all it's crazy it's so spooky and i did take a lot of photos and even got a little ghostly video on which which creeped me out to no end. But anyway, <laughs> um, and then at the end of it there's a space that overlooks the highway overlooks everything and there's this huge Jesus cross situation but there's actually a thing with a booklet of all the with the names of everyone who died and there's a thing with glass over it that actually has you know a piece of uh, glasses a, a shoe things like that that were you know from it that are, I mean it's all crap it's falling apart no one's taking care of it um and there's the you know little plastic flowers everywhere memorial it's a very creepy thing but the fact that the you know the state didn't try to do anything to memorialize this um it's just a shame and well it's a shame but going back to the fact that you believe it was a uh premeditated mass murder um i can't imagine a lot of official accounts drew that same conclusion is it true did it, you're saying the book didn't draw that conclusion they don't they don't draw a definitive conclusion that it was the mafia or that it was this group or that group or whatever they can tell that it was arson. And and officially, it's deemed an accident. Yes. Officially, it's deemed an accident in the in the Kentucky, yes. you know, record books. Record books. Yeah. Uh, an accident or... Um, and But also, you know, there, there will be no further investigation because, A, most of the people have passed away who were directly involved in it and the money that it would take to dig all this up, and there's so much missing evidence. It, it, there's no statute of limitations for this kind of thing, though, right? I mean... I don't know. I don't that'd know. be interesting to learn. Well, I knew I knew that it, al it already was reinvestigated, but they were unable to, you know, pin it down officially on anyone. Um, yeah, there's even thing about here about was it is it considered mass murder, and there's a lot of the author's opinion of things. So. Well, I mean, that's that's the point. Is it considered mass murder? I think the author of this book maybe is exploring if it was negligence. Right. Okay. Is that is that mass murder? I'm not. No. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm yeah. saying right. if it's not negligence if you're painting accelerant right. on the walls right. and then you want it to go off when it's the most packed. It, 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 you know, that's not negligence and that's not, you know, is it mass murder? That's right. definitely mass murder. Right. You know, right? I mean, or unless I'm crazy. No, you're not crazy. Yeah. But this I mean, is what, a mass what, murder. What happened with this that I find interesting is that it's not, I mean, yeah, that's a huge element of the question of like, what, why did this happen at this time and whatever. But the, the thing that kind of comes on top of that, oversees it, is the fact that the governor just destroyed all evidence that he wanted to he didn't want an investigation he didn't want to get to the truth of it right which, so which lends itself to all these questions so 
yes, what you're all of those things you're saying are accurate and questions to be asking. But well, yeah, that's what makes we, it such a, a compelling and disturbing story. Yeah, and it's, it's, there's so many echoes to the Eastland. There's yeah. so many. I mean, you know, the the um, Eastland disaster was shut down by a judge in Chicago. And then the Eastland eventually was sold for scrap. So it, yeah. it's, it's, it's like the same thing happened to the right. Beverly Hills Supper Club uh, ruins. It was sold for scrap. You know, it was, it was swept away. Right. It was demolished. Yeah. Right. So that's the story of the Beverly Hills Supper Club. And I, you know what I think we've learned? People are dicks. <laughs> there are some big dicks <laughs> out there. Yeah. And a lot of people have suffered because of dicks. Right. Something should be done, right? About the dick problem in, <laughs> in America. Yes, we. I think we should end on a good note, though. Yeah, you, you got <laughs> one. <laughs> you got one. <laughs> no, I. I actually, I said my good one earlier about the, the about the, the teddy bears in the, the window. Like, we're gonna have to come up with something to bookend that. All right. Well, I'll say this because that the teddy bear thing sort of is part of it but that in all this insanity and craziness right now and horrible things and deaths and you know hospital workers having to like be this front right. line right um it's just it's ridiculous it's awful but one thing that i'm noticing is that you know before this happened every day the news would just be worse and worse and every time that man opens his mouth it would just get worse the level of hatred between you know people online the are you talking just, about trump yeah okay let's I, name him we don't have to say that man well i think it's obvious <laughs> um so. he's, he's our he's our fearless president <laughs> so um what was I by saying? fearless i mean stupid <laughs> now that this is happening that there's a lot of really beautiful things that i'm seeing every day that are more yeah. people people caring. appreciating each other and people yeah. smiling and people right because everybody's affected yeah that's uh, it's you, not like right it's not republican democrat it's not right you know rich poor like when it's, we passed we passed someone today and they said thank you yeah we got out of their way right in our yeah. little masks, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But um, but I I do find, and there was the house that we passed that had like the chalk written on the front with like these just uplifting messages, and um, so I just feel like there's a lot of beautiful things happening in in spite of this that hopefully will, you know, stick around and um, give people right. a new perspective of right. life and what's important and what are we arguing about and here's what's really important. That's my yeah. Happy note. Yeah. There's love in the time of coronavirus. Yeah. Well said, Jill. We had our, our six year anniversary right in the middle of it. Right. <laughs> right. And we ordered in. We ordered and, in French food. It a little was candlelight dinner in our living room on our couch. It was awesome. It was. All right. Well, there you go. There you have it. That's our first edition of This Should Be a Podcast. And we promise they'll get better and better. Yes, we promise. <laughs> uh, so, well done. Yeah, so stay tuned, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. The music for This Should Be a Podcast is Close Shave by The Riptones. Check it out. On Spotify.